Hello and welcome to another episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Shalat and as ever I'm delighted to say that I have been joined by Varun Vasudevan who is hopefully a little excited this time. How are you Varun? Hi, I'm good and yes I am excited. <laughs> Brilliant. Like <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can really tell man it's 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 I mean your your voice really conveyed the enthusiasm there. Uh but anyway, uh, we've also got Alex Barker joining us who will hopefully can my some more enthusiasm so how are you alex <laughs> you're joking right can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we explain why i sound very different yeah go on go on um hi ladies and gentlemen i've kept us back about 15 minutes from recording because if you're listening in the uk um you know it's very very hot right now and as a result my computer uh doesn't well will not turn on because i think it knows it well if it does turn on it will overheat so it's stopping itself turning on which means i'm using my mac and as amazing apple are they don't have usb ports so i can't plug in my mic <laughs> um so i'm using my earphones and i'd just like to put this as a side note as an apology to uh, to greece and europe because in the summer when their like countries were on fire i was it was 20 degrees in the uk and completely fine so i was laughing and i was like well where we go we've dodged the summer and little did i know in september <laughs> we'd have the we'd break the record for the longest heat wave that month 30 degrees every day i mean look i completely understand the science behind your houses construction blah 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 but like as someone who ended, if you're going to tell me you're going to tell me that 30 <laughs> degrees isn't hot i'm going to fly Hold to Qatar yeah, yeah. please and, do because... like burn you alive yeah, yeah please do because the minimum temperature is around 34 35 here right no no and, how what's your air conditioner on at the moment um 27 yeah we don't have aircon here so get stuffed yeah sure <laughs> but i, I have to walk every day you say yeah sure as if you don't believe it we don't have aircon in the uk yeah i know i know you don't i mean you don't yeah. need it but but i have to walk in the sun every day at over 45 degrees for 10 minutes So you're not going to tell me what a heat wave is like. I have Alex, to stay Alex, in a room that's okay. 45 <laughs> degrees for 24 hours. You shouldn't okay, you guys. shouldn't argue with a guy from Qatar and a guy from India on Right, I'm literally ginger. I trump both of you. If I go outside in February, I burn. Uh, okay, guys, this is not very tactics podcast of us. So I I I say we should get um on on to our main point for today but i did like the fact that this was a very intense discussion because uh, i do expect our following discussion to be similarly intense in some cases and it is about a team who are known for their intensity at this point because we will be talking about newcastle united today and specifically we'll take a look at their start to this season which has not gone particularly well uh, we are four league games into the premier league season Uh, where they have three losses uh, and just one win i believe uh, th- uh, their fixtures started with a, a, a brilliant win over aston villa 5-1 uh, but then it it's all gone downhill from then uh, they lost narrowly to manchester city just 1-0 but tactically in that match uh, i felt they were completely undone uh, then they lost to liverpool in a close game uh, 2-1 and then again they were dismantled really by brighton uh, last weekend Uh, in in a game that ended 3-1 but could have been worse easily so uh, and of course we also had the champions league draw which didn't look particularly favorable for them cuz i mean boy do they have some group they've been drawn with uh, milan paris saint germain and borussia dortmund 
So their return to the Champions League doesn't look particularly kind as well. And naturally then, the talk of, well, the talk of the town really is how Newcastle United season is going to be and whether they'll, they'll be able to even match the achievements they managed last season in terms of a top four finish. So that's basically what we'll be talking about today. But before we get into this season, let's very quickly take a look back uh, at their previous season to see what they were doing. So Warren, why don't you quickly run us through what they did in 22-23. Of course, they finished in the top four, qualified for Champions League. But let's let's talk more maybe about their, their tactics and how, how they set up to get to the top four. Yeah, I'm not sure on the quickly part, but I'll try my best. <laughs> so, I mean, the first thing we have to start with is that they had better underlying numbers than Manchester United. I mean, I was pretty sure they will finish third until the end. So, it was a pretty good season. Their XG, their XGA and a lot of their numbers were just pretty damn good. They, they were all top four level and even third, uh, third level. So, it was a good season and... Tactically, if we are talking about Eddie Howe's philosophy, um, it is very intense. As you said, they play this brand of 4-3-3 football. But then, unlike any other top four team, they're not very slow, build-up oriented, measured in in possession. They are pretty direct. Uh, In fact, there were only five teams that were more direct than them last year in terms of the speed of attack. So that gives you first insight into what Eddie House Newcastle wants to do. They attack really quickly. And they don't stitch together too many passes per sequence. It's it's long passes, very vertical passes. They're not, you know, side passing and making long chains as well. So that is Eddie House philosophy and how they play. So they line up in a 4-3-3. And I think their their biggest acquisition under Eddie Howe has been Bruno Guimaraes. And how they got him for the price at which they got him is still a mystery to me. But he was, the, I think, the first piece which really elevated them to top four levels. And he's a brilliant playmaker. I mean, the top clubs must be kicking themselves for missing out on him. And he plays at the base of that 4-3-3. We'll come on to that later, whether he should play there. But then last year, he was brilliant. And he was playmaking for, for them from the middle of the park. And Kirian... Trippier also had a very good season from right back. So these two uh, took care of playmaking. And we'll first talk about uh, their their build-up. And their build-up isn't very build-up oriented. Yes, they form a 4-2. There is, you know, someone like Longstaff who comes and drops beside Goimaris. But they, they, don't, they don't really have so many of those short wall passes. They actually go direct to Goimaris or Trippier and then they go direct to a winger. In two passes, they mostly cross the defensive third and middle third. And that's usually how they get out of their half. And it's been very consistent. And they don't mind throwing the ball in the final third. Because after that, they know they can press and get it back. And that is where we come to how they defend. Because that's pretty much the basis of this Newcastle. They defend really well. They press really well. The PPDA has just been decreasing uh, throughout AD House tenure. And it's been one of the best in the league. Their high regains are amazing. They, again, were in the top three for high regains uh, in the league last year. Um, And even if you see them out of possession, they're very compact. They have this, they they have that 4-3-3 shape, but Goimaris is almost like another eight. You know, he's not your static six. He's not waiting and defending deep. He is almost in line with the two eights. And they form these three very strong banks 
uh, of of a high press where the three attackers press uh, the back three or the back four of the opposition and then the mid three follow it up as well so very good high press setup and i think that was one of the main reasons for their success last year in the end their uh, defense was pretty good they had an xga which was second best in the league and i think those are the reasons they came in the top four so pretty good start uh, to house tenure i would say yep and i think you alluded to their xga so i suppose it's also worth taking a look at how their underlying numbers were and also maybe you know obviously you can't compare the two samples but also maybe looking at if there's been any notable changes uh this season so alex have you been looking through fb ref uh, as we call it Yeah, I've been looking through for breath. Uh, people listening, please let us know which one you use. I assure the guys, it's uh, for breath. We had a very fiery debate, uh, almost as fiery as Newcastle. It's FB ref, uh, so it's two one for the FB ref guys. Excuse, excuse me, it's my section. Um, it's my section, please. I'd like to talk about that. Thank you, guys. Uh, Newcastle. Um, yeah, it's we should throw the small sample size alert out. They've only played what. four games as you yeah. said in the premier league like these stats don't necessarily mean a lot we're just using these as maybe as an early potential guide any early potential findings and like an example of um how you know skewed they are in this in these four games is that five of their seven goals this season came against aston villa in their first game uh which is also going to be a chunk of their non-penalty expected goals. Um, but per 90, their attack is still basically the same as last season. In fact, marginally better. But what is interesting early doors is their defence is a, a lot worse. I mean, last season in the Premier League, I think um, for Breath Hadlam as the second best defence in the league for non-penalty expected goals against. Uh, but this season they are sixth best, which is not too bad. But they've gone from 0.89 to 1.23, uh, which I think is a really big increase. Um, also, some other points. I thought what might be more interesting here is to look at the players in the team, even though it's arguably even smaller sample size because not all of them are playing every single minute. Um, there's some interesting indications. For example, Alexander Isaac is taking less shots per 90 at the moment. Um, I think we're going to talk about him later, where he's playing, that might have an effect on it. Um, their progressive passes as a team are down by 10 and their carries are only slightly up. So that might be an indication of them struggling to penetrate opposition teams. What I thought was really interesting is after losing Alain Maximum, who was not only the best dribbler and one of the most high volume dribblers in their squad, also one of the most high volume dribblers in the Premier League. Last season he was completing 4.6 successful dribbles per 90. Um overall their dribbles per 90 hasn't completely fallen off. Uh but Isaac's the only player averaging over 2 per 90 and the rest are kind of the same. So I think maybe the rest of the team is uh having to dribble more or having to attempt more, but overall They, they, they overall but rather they don't have a standout carrier anymore in Isaac and I think perhaps that's something to look at across the season are they more predictable like they've lost an element of unpredictability against deep blocks so th- I think these are the biggest changes you can find in their stats yeah and and that's interesting the point you make about San Maximan and of course he's I mean they haven't had too many major departures but they certainly have added 
a, a good few pieces to the squad. It was a, again a fairly busy transfer window, not as much as last year, of course, but still some major signings made. So, uh, Varun, what did you make uh, of their arrivals uh, this season? So, before we get into that, I just had uh, another pop quiz. Um, how much do you think Newcastle have spent under Eddie Howe? I don't think it's under that much. Eddie Howe. Okay, so that's last three windows, basically. Three right? windows. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, last window they spent a decent amount. Um, I would say, at Tonali they spent a lot. I would say 220 million euros. I okay, will say... How much is that in Great British Pounds? That's fine. Oh, euros is fine. I have my answer in euros. Alex, oh, okay. So um, I'll go... I think it's going to be a bit more, actually. 283 million euros. Okay. So, this is the reason I asked this. Because they've actually spent 470 million. Oh. He took this damn. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> and... The reason I bring this up is because a lot of people don't have an idea. So they spent 130 million in his first window, which had yeah. Guimaraes uh, 40, Chris Wood 30. That was a bad one. Joe Willock 30. <laughs> and That's what I then, yeah. yeah, then in the next window, they spent 190 million. Um, Isaac 70, Gordon 50, oh, Botman yes. 40, Target 20, Nick Pope 12. And then in this last window, yes, yes. they've spent 150 million. Tonali 64, Barnes 44, Liveramento 40. Um, so a, a total is almost a 500 million uh, outlay. And all said and done, that is immense support to a manager. I mean, they have they have obviously bought him a new 11 and a few other signings as well. And they had at least four or five really good players that they could rely on from before as well. So I think transfer-wise... How has been really, really backed. Um, so I just wanted to lay that one out there. So coming to this season, it's actually been really interesting. Their signings have been Tonali for 64 million. That's the big one, the headline one. Uh, Barnes for 44. There was a lot of debate on this. I think he started well. Liveramento for 37 million. This was... I mean, the price is actually a little steep for someone who hasn't played in a while because of a massive ACL injury. But then he was pretty talented before the injury. So I'm I'm not super surprised that they're willing to shell that out. And another interesting signing is Lewis Hall on a loan. I mean, a lot of people did not expect that. And Chelsea has just, you know, been letting go of so many of the youngsters. And I think Lewis Hall is also a smart capture. Those are the main ones. It looks like they've gone for quality. Over quantity, they bought a lot of players in the last two windows. This time, they've just ended with three buys and a loan. So, obviously, they, they're looking at strengthening with quality. And I think the first name that pops out is Tonali. Now, I actually think, I, I will throw it to you after I make my opinion. I actually think Tonali is a good fit for what they want to do. I think it's a good signing. And I actually think Tonali has been misprofiled as a number six or a playmaker for way too long. The Perlo comparisons, I don't see them other than the nice hairstyle. I never understood it. Even at Milan, he played as a number eight destroyer, a box-to-box player. And I think that that fits well with the number eight profile that Newcastle had. There were a lot of rumors that he'll come and play the six and Goimaris will go eight. I never saw that. And Tonali started as the eight and he, he's good. He, he fits their counter-press strategy and then when required he also drops a bit and helps out he is decently technical but i wouldn't call him a playmaker 
and he's pretty good in the final third he's a little underrated he has good shots good final third passes uh, and awareness of where to be so i actually think that's a good signing a little uh, little on the higher side at 64 million but looking at the rates at which players have gone i think this will quickly go under the radar as an expensive one i, I don't think it will be considered an expensive signing in in a year or two so what do you guys think about tanali yeah i think I- you um pretty much i mean i pretty much 100% agree with what you said profile wise i completely agree and i think anyone who's ever watched him play will totally agree he's not a six um and yeah my main when it happened my main reservation was the fee but then after how this window is gone i don't think we can really complain about it so yeah i i I'd, i'd agree with that but the thing that i really took from your points there varan was i didn't I mean, well, clearly by our guesses, I didn't realize they spent 470 million euros. And Newcastle now in my head, without looking at their squad like in front of me, because that would be cheating. Um, they got into the Champions League, so clearly the money has been worth every penny. But at the same time, when I think of their team, bar Jimaraes, bar Isaac, I don't think, like, it doesn't scream 470 million, you know? Like, I don't know, like City... They've probably spent that in like the last couple windows, right? And that's absolutely like you look at their team, absolutely fair enough. And I guess that's you know, apples or oranges comparison. But 470 million euros that feels like I don't know, they should have another Jim Arash and Isaac in there, or maybe I'm just feeling harsh. I don't know, you have a, you two. I think you get, um, uh, I'm a little confused because I think that's last four windows. So I, wait, so when I asked you last three windows, did you count this one that just happened? Yes. Because uh, on transfer mark, Gimaraish is listed under the twenty one twenty two arrivals. Yeah, yeah, that um, winter uh, was. Yeah, that winter. Yeah, it was the winter January window, wasn't it? it was... Yeah. Well, so how I was mean, there? Hold on, hold on. So wait, it's it's summer of twenty three, uh, January twenty three, and summer of twenty two. Those are the three windows I was thinking about. Oh uh, no, I meant like the two and a half years under how. Like that. Oh, it should be four windows, isn't it? Yeah, January, exactly. January twenty-two, summer twenty-two, yeah, January twenty-three, yeah. summer twenty-three. Uh, so Varun yeah. actually cheated. Yeah, he. I mean, he tricked us, but like, as if you guys were gonna get that, even. With that. <laughs> e- e- no, no, yeah. Even then, even with like, all of those yeah, windows, yeah, I'm still like, I guess four hundred seventy million across those windows is maybe a bit, a bit less player for player, but like, I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, but but like see, I, I kind of get, guys, I, I kind of get. Um, sorry, I kind of get um, um, Alex's point. It doesn't feel like a five hundred million uh, squad. It doesn't feel like a title challenging squad, and I think that's where the question marks up. It definitely feels like a top four squad, but then the gap between coming fourth and mounting a title challenge against City, that gap is massive. It's probably um, another five hundred million, <laughs> or maybe just never possible. You know, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a really good comparison. Actually, like City, that's a, a stupid one. But them and Arsenal, like there's yeah, so much. That's between a better comparison. Them. Yeah, like there's so, it feels like Newcastle need to spend another four hundred million to be on the level of Arsenal. But I, I and, think um, on that point, it's also important to remember that this four hundred million was basically taking a relegation team to a top four team. So like sure. some of the guys you mentioned, right? Like Barnes. Like I totally forgot he moved there. Okay, and he's he's probably not a starter, but like he makes sense because they have Champions League this season. They need squad depth. Um, I I get why you'd sign him in that case. So 
I think this is not a 400 million starting 11, but rather a 400 million squad. And if you think about it that way, I, I mean, it's obviously a lot of money still, but like, I mean, there's uh, also way too much considering money also considering their owners, they can do this. Yeah, it's not like it's though. a problem for them. Like, yeah, they can <laughs> do this all all year. So yeah, as long as they sort of obey, like, don't um, break FFP, they can do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, don't slag off Saudi, then you can do whatever you want. But probably both apply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Should we move into discussion points, guys? Oh, yes. This is this is a very fun part of the podcast. So, uh, when we were preparing the doc, we started with positives and negatives, right? But if anyone's listened to the previous episodes, they'll know that Alex is not very familiar to the concept of positivity. So, his positives were basically things which were not negative, as you will soon find out. But let's start with a more interesting discussion point, which is about Alexander Isak. So the big question is, I mean, I think we all agree that in terms of a profile, he's sort of a hybrid profile, like striker, winger, you know, not like a pure nine, but not like a pure wide winger. We all agree on that. Like he's a very good carrier, but also great finisher, dangerous in the box. But the big question is, do you start him in the middle or do you start him out wide? What do you guys think? I have my hand up. I can go first. Um, oh, yeah, that's, that's the way we're going to work. Beat you, Farrow. Yes. <laughs> uh, my, my big point would be, I'd not really put much thought into this idea as much as you two, but my brain's kind of thinking about it because of what I looked into about like, uh, Sam Maximum and Isaac is Newcastle's most high-volume dribbler. So maybe it makes sense to have him 1v1 in wide areas. But my big question would be, if he's at left wing or right wing, who do you drop and start? Because if he goes left wing... You have to drop Gordon, right? Or are you playing Gordon yeah. down the middle? Like, nah, nah. I what's your plans? Uh, personally, I would drop Gordon, um, start Isak out wide on the left, Almiron on the right. Um, maybe you can put Gord- you can rotate between Almiron and Gordon there, possibly. Um, but yeah, Isak left and a proper striker, so Wilson uh, probably down the middle. And I don't know. So I, th- I think I think I'm... honestly, the oh, just a second. I think the main problem here. I mean, like Isak, in terms of a wing, he's definitely going to the left. He's not remotely as effective off the right, in my opinion. And I think the problem here becomes Newcastle's um, maybe squad building. Because if they had a, you know, dangerous overlapping left back, I think this could work a lot better than what they have now. Because right now, what they have is like, you know, maybe a Dan Burn or, or basically like a deeper left back. And a more attacking right back, whether it's Trippier or even the backup Livramento. Um, but if you had that sort of overlapping left back, then that frees up Isak more to get inside in the final third uh, when someone else is still providing the width. So I can understand the sort of the the reasons why you play a proper winger on the left like Gordon. Um, but yeah, I think in an ideal world, Isak starts left wing. Drifts inside, and then you have a left back overlapping, probably. Sorry, so I got you up there. Yeah. No problem. I I'm actually okay with Isaac being a striker. Um, I've I saw him a lot at Sociedad, and I really liked him. I wanted him for United uh, as any good player. But then, I'm I'm not surprised that he's making it at striker. I do agree. He likes to drift to the left, you know, in those left half spaces or left wing, and his carrying power is just too good to ignore. But you know, th- that's a problem maybe in sides which have very, very 
um, rigid positional principles you know like if he's playing for city for example you know if guardiola is using isak i think he puts him on the left uh, or maybe converts him even into a left half space player and maybe doesn't play him as a striker but then um, you know when you have when you don't have any specific uh, half spaces or areas to be constrained to and when your team is very very reliant on the transition then it's pretty much just attacking spaces right and if you see the counters newcastle's counters it's just people running into spaces and whether that's on the left or the center or the right they just they just manage and if you look at it from that point of view i think it all works out for what they want to do now does it work out well enough for them to you know beat city or go far in the champions league that i'm not sure but i think from house point of view he wants three of the best transition attackers and he's not really thinking left winger strike striker right winger he's definitely not thinking right winger because they haven't bought one they only have almiron and they probably have three or four players who can play on the left you know that's uh, gordon isak uh, barnes all of them are better on the left but i don't think it matters to him because it's just about attacking those spaces so i think that's why it kind of works and i think we are going to see isak at striker you know all day what do you think alex um, I, I think maybe, like, let's say we're actioning our points. I think in our, our doc, you guys have written down especially points that it's almost like decisions. I feel like, based off what you were saying, well, I think I agree more with you, Varun, than Neil. I think maybe when Newcastle are playing like the average Premier League team and the bigger teams, it makes sense to have Isaac up front to go forward, like, into space. I think maybe it makes more sense to him, as you kind of saying. I feel like I'm copying what you're saying, but I did. I was thinking this before you said it. I just want to make that clear. That sure, against Alex, like a sure. Deep, <laughs> sure, against Alex. against like a deep block team, like especially with his dribbles, it would make more sense for him to be like isolated on the left and being able to come inside and dribble. But like, like, it, like Anthony Gordon at the moment, he kind of comes inside and Joe Linton, in not inversely, like moves laterally outward. I don't see the point in making Isaac putting Isaac there in transition. Like you're just, he's got a harder route to go in an open space. You just want him down the middle. Um, so I, I said, if we were action in this point, like Isaac at, le- at left wing against against Luton, put down the middle against everyone else. Neil's had his hand up for ages. What did you want to say, Neil? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, um, Warren made some very good points there, and yeah, to be fair, that makes sense. Like. I, I still I still do think that in an ideal world you want Isak as a left to, like starting on the left, but in the current circumstances that Newcastle have, uh, it definitely probably makes more sense to start him as a striker actually. So uh, you have me convinced, I guess. But anyway, let's let's move on to our next point, which is about Bruno Guimaraes. So the question is, is he a number six or a number eight, or rather, the question is where should we play him? So let's have your thoughts, guys. Those are two. I I think we should race through this pretty quickly, um, right. because I think it's very clear cut. Is he a six or an eight? He is an eight. Should he play as a six or an eight? He should play as a six at Newcastle. There's a really good piece done on the Athletic about this um, last season. Uh, I looked into it when I was doing a video on Caicedo. Uh, I can't I can't remember exactly. I can't remember exactly who wrote it. So my apologies. You'll be able to find it. But essentially, when Jimenez has played as an eight for Newcastle, he's been able he's receiving the ball, he's back to goal. He's not able to do the things we associate with him in the final third. Whereas a six he can pop up as a surprise as like the free man 
on the edge of the box and do one of his wonder passes or shots. So I think I think we'd all agree he's like he could play as an eight. Like his abilities, his attributes could put him as an eight. I I would really strongly come out and say he should be as a six in Newcastle, and that's coming from someone who never thought that always. Varun, do you agree? Mm, not quite. Um, so when I saw Guimarish at Lyon, I thought, okay, this is a playmaker eight, or at the very least, uh, one of the guys in the pivot who has the license to roam around. He can obviously drop the builder, but then go and uh, roam around and attack the final final third. And even if you remember his first few games for Newcastle, that after the winter signing towards the end of the season. He was amazing as an 8. He was playing as a right-sided 8. He had 2-3 wonder goals, really good assists. So he, he was he was pretty good as an 8. Where I do agree with you is that in this setup, he makes more sense as a 6. So I am with you on that. But now I'm thinking long-term, if you have to control the game a bit more, if you have to keep the ball a bit more, if you want to be toe-to-toe with... City, Napoli, you know, Bayern of, of uh, you know, in, in the Champions League. You probably can't play like this. And then when you start changing a system to keep the ball a bit more, and when you start thinking of a midfield three that is more retention-based and is able to defend transitions better, is able to keep the ball better, I then Guimarães as a six starts to become a lot, lot bigger of a question mark. And you probably want that guy as the number eight who drops to help an actual holding midfielder and then also goes up and helps creativity in the final third because you'll need that creativity. Because right now, they don't really have that in their front five. And Guimarães pinging balls from the back works for now. So I am talking more about it uh, from a future perspective. I think as they evolve he might move ahead and they might need a proper holding profile behind him. Yeah, but I think we are in agreement for this season then that I think he should play as a six because I think Alex made some great points. And also the other thing is, if not him, then who? Um, yeah, they have no I, six. Yeah, so uh, I, it's, I think it's pretty cut, like clear cut that. But now let's move on to another very interesting point. Now, this is one which only Alex can make. So Alex, please take it away for your next positive as as you would proclaim it, which it is right. to be fair. I have been set up quite badly here. I would just <laughs> like to mention, um, pre-podcast, uh, we had a few. We we sectioned our points as positives and negatives, and we had six negative points and not a single positive. And Neil said, "Guys, we're going to need to put some positives down." And there was about twenty seconds of nothing. So uh, I've written, and we've already touched on it. Um, Tenali isn't crap. So that's good because everyone slated him in preseason, and also, as we've mentioned, uh, it's very sunny in Newcastle. I think uh, so. He probably isn't feeling homesick. Uh, so you know, those are two things you've got to add on as a positive. And my other positive, uh, which I, I'm more serious on this, I genuinely think is a positive, and Neil and Varun completely disagree, and I, I think I'll win this argument. My positive here is since Botman has been injured. Um, they've been conce- they've been more shaky at the back, and I think that's a positive because it shows their issues right now, early doors, are more of a personnel issue and less of a tactical issue. And before I let the wolves come for me, I'd like to perfectly lay out why. In fact, I'll ask Varun. I'll ask you. Neil's got his hand up, but I'm going to ask Varun quickly. 
What do you think of Manchester United this season? Have you, are you worried for the season or do you think you'll be okay? That is a bad question to ask Varun, but okay. <laughs> no, briefly. Um, I mean, I'm worried because of the last two months. Uh, but when the season started and after the signings were made, I didn't think I'd have to worry and I hope I don't have to worry. Right. And you like broadly, you're like, okay, rocky start, but should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because most of your squad is injured. Like Mount's injured. Yeah, more or less. Been, your horn's been like, right. That is exactly my point. Newcastle, looking shaky at the back because Botman's out. In my opinion, that's fine. He's generally not had injury issues. And it means you can put more trust in Eddie Howe. It means you can put more trust in the squad. And you can write these issues down to, okay, they're irritating. Once we get Botman back, we'll be fine. It should reinforce our belief in our own style of play. And it's not going to be toxic. I think it'd be far worse. I think this would be really bad and a big negative if they don't play poorly and Botman was still there. Neil, come for me. Yeah. So I think, no, I think I understand what you're saying, right? Um, and the, the last point you made, I would say that the reason behind that is because they haven't really changed much in terms of their playing style from last season to this season. So, like, there, there, there isn't any real space for new tactical issues to appear. Now, obviously, what we call tactics is a different discussion and how that leads into personnel and stuff. We'll keep that aside. But I think the main point I want to make is that the example you gave of Manchester United... Or maybe even a better one might be Chelsea, actually, because, I mean, they're not doing well, but there's you know, a lot of talk about key players being yeah. missing, like Nkunku and all that. So, I get that. But the thing with Chelsea is, they're not missing just one guy, right? They're missing a couple of players. With Newcastle, they have dropped off significantly with just one guy out. So, if, if we are pinning their issues to Botman, then they've dropped off significantly because of one player. And in, 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 in the current setup of modern football, you simply cannot afford to rely so much on one single player um, when you're going to be playing, give or take 50 games a season, which one guy simply cannot manage. So given the fact that they're in the Champions League this season, I think this is something they should have addressed in the window. Um, and I think it's a negative that they are in this situation because obviously injuries are possible, but also Botman was never going to be able to play every single game. So in any case, at some point they would have encountered this. Uh, so I think that's why I would consider it a negative. But you're right. It's not a tactical issue, which is a good thing in itself. But I think it was never going to be a tactical issue unless they changed tactics. So that's why I, I think, think it's a negative. Just to quickly, just to quickly raise a different point on that, because it could, it doesn't necessarily be they changed tactics, but, you know, other teams might be they got found out differently. Right, yeah, right. That, yeah, yeah, they, yeah the, the way of saying it. So it could have been that. Like, yeah, I, I accept that too. Baron Gorn. So I have a point to, I, I think it supports the argument. So I have a graph in front of me, um, which is titled Team Outfield Player Availability. It was on an Analytics FC article. And basically on the axis is over 2,500 minutes played by outfield players. And it's ranked ba based on that, on the number of players who are available. Obviously at the lowest end of the, of the graph is Chelsea. Uh, they had the most injuries and the least outfield players available last year. This is for last year, 22-23 season. And at the very other extreme, you have Newcastle. They had the most out outfield players available for them last year. They had most of their senior players playing for them throughout the year. And their 11 was pretty consistent. If you remember, the back four played together for almost 
I think it was 28-29 Premier League games and then someone got injured and then Guimaraes was suspended for three games and that's when they actually conceded a few goals and then they got it all sorted once everyone was back. So they're just so reliant on their starting back for their starting number six Guimaraes. One or two injuries does really shake them a lot. So it's a good 11 but then I guess that's where Neil's point comes in. Is it a good squad? to be competing on three fronts, Champions League, FA Cup, Premier League. That is a question I think Newcastle will find out this year. Yeah, and I think on that point, um, it's important to sort of caveat last season's uh, that, that stat with the fact that Newcastle were basically only playing, I mean, they weren't playing continental football, right? So exactly. they could focus more on the league. Of course, they did have that cup run. Um, but I think it's less likely that they will have so much availability this season. Of course, there is one element of injuries that you can't control. But, you know, in terms of minutes played, uh, you know, load management and all that, uh, I think it'll be tougher for them this season. Um, yeah, and, and, and another point you have to consider is in all these uh, sides that uh, rely a lot on the high press or, you know, are a counter-pressing side, it's that second-year drop. Exactly. Which is which is the killer. We've seen this with Klopp's Liverpool. We've seen this with Leipzig teams. We've seen this with almost any team. To an extent, even United. I mean, uh, Ten Hag wanted to press a lot last year and we're seeing injuries. So, that second year is, there, there is usually a drop. So, it, it's not yeah. improbable. Yeah, I think that's the final caveat I was going to say before Alex uh, comes in. Is that their playing style is also one thing. Because last season was the first full season where they were on this gung-ho pressing side under Howe, right? But so now they're one full season into it. I think now you can sort of, sort of start feeling the more long-term effects of this more intense style. But I think Alex has something to say. So well, on, I Alex. think that leads quite nicely into the point you're probably going to let's introduce. So as a break into that point, I'd just like to quickly say I googled Sam Botman's injury history after I made my point to double check how he is, and um, I accidentally googled transfer injury history, just like general. I'll just give you two a quick chance. Uh, to guess which player just popped up if you type in injury history on Google. And it is an obvious Paul one. Paul Bugba? No, not quite. No. Varun, any guess? Uh, Eric Bailey? I mean... <laughs> it, was, uh, it was Thiago of Liverpool, who in fairness, oh, I genuinely oh, cannot... Yeah. I can't remember the last yeah. time I watched him play football. Yeah, but, um, last time I watched no him does. play Champions League final for Bayern. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, before, before I interrupted that, you were gonna, you, we're going to talk about the long-term effects. I think on one of our final points, uh, we've got out of possession, and we were discussing this before. Uh, I, I, think, it, I don't think I'm saying anything wrong here. I was reading about this recently, that Newcastle, their intensity is a bit down at the moment. They've, in the last few games, there's been some good analysis uh, on a various different websites, actually, of Channel Newcastle, they they're trying to go man to man in the final third in their in their press, and they're they're late later than they were last season, which is giving opposition teams enough time to exploit the space their press is creating. And we we argued about this before because Neil and Varun feel that I'm not sure if Varun felt it, definitely Neil because he's always arguing with me felt that. Their out of position is out of possession is good compared to last season. I didn't watch him enough last season to comment. However, I would argue it's bad because the execution is just not working. Neil, wait, hold on. Yeah, quick comment. I I didn't mean to say compared to last season. 
because I agree it's not it's not better compared to last right. year. Right. What I was trying to say is that like on maybe a sort of abstract level, like that out of possession ideas tactics are good uh, or one of the better ones in the league. Now, of course, then comes the question of execution, which is of course where our debate was, um, and. There, I think, obviously, this season, I mean, it's quite obvious they've been lacking. But the question is, is there lack of execution due to the tactics? Or is there lack of execution due to some other reasons? Maybe injuries, maybe load management. Maybe just the fact that, you know, we're just starting the season. I think there was a quote from some manager, I forgot who, who basically said that until the first international break, which is what we're in right now, you should effectively consider all that period pre-season because that, the players yeah. are, are, are still getting eased in. So I think that that's also something to cons- consider is that you know these guys are probably not 100% right now. Um, so maybe their intensity will go up you know, later this month into October. Uh, but I think the main point I'm trying to make there is that like on, a, on an abstract level, their out-of-possession tactics or their out-of-possession approach, philosophy, call it what you will, is one of the better ones in the league. But I think Varun has something to add to that. Mm, so I'll tell you where I'm split on this. Um, let's consider the defensive phase as two parts. One is the high press and one is the the low block or the rest defense. Uh, you know, the shape that, that you rely on when you're, when you're hit by transitions. And I think the high press is amazing. Uh, that's where I am with you. They are one of the best uh, pressers, and I don't think that's changed much. That front six, you'll be hard pressed to find um, a better front six uh, defending from the front. So that is for sure true. The problem starts after that. If you have beaten their press and you have a go at their back four, if you have a go at that space behind the number six, Bruno Guimaraes is not a holding six. We know that. Uh, the number eights are also not good holding profiles. They're not blocking the center very solidly. They do try to make around it by inverting Trippier or inverting Dan Burn. But again, even, and Dan Burn especially can be got at. I mean, Anthony of all people dribble past Dan Burn multiple <laughs> times. So that, that shows you that they can be got at. But then you have to get to that point. The problem teams had last year is they didn't get to those points. They didn't have enough 1v1s against Dan Burn and Trippier. They didn't have enough Runners running behind Goimarish and running straight at the centre-backs. Uh, those opportunities were limited because Newcastle are amazing at the high press. Now that you know what Newcastle are going to do, and in general, most of the teams are really good at playing out of the back now. Even Burnley uh, are so good when, when they're playing out of the back. So now that you know what Newcastle are going to do, and everyone's build-up abilities have increased a level, and they know where the spaces are, I think it will be tougher for Newcastle to rely on their transition defense or that phase when it comes into their half. I think they'll be forced to do a lot of that type of defending instead of the high press defending in the opponent half. And I think that is going to be their out-of-possession problem statement for this year. I mean, it's my guess, but I think a lot of teams are going to figure out that you can have a go at their back four or back five once you beat the front five, front six high press. I, I think that's where I disagree with you. In the, I, I, I agree with the point you made, right? Which is that their press is absolutely, I mean, almost elite. And then the back four is not very good. That's totally true. 
but i think that's the that's the main point that i was trying to make i think this i'll i'll just maybe say this has a last word because then we have to go on to another thing as well but the final thing which i think probably sums this up is that last season they had the same back four and the issue was still there as you say but it was effectively covered up by their brilliant press right and while it is true that they are sort of more susceptible to being you know found out or i mean have their weaknesses exploited this season i i do think that one of the big problems in these four first four games has been a lack of intensity rather than a tactical issue right so like if if we take for example let's take manchester united press from last season you know with especially the full back jump and stuff which is a different story but basically that was a tactical issue right so that was something which they did game upon game which they they were intentionally doing and which and something that was weakening them which they knew they were doing right um whereas with newcastle i think if they execute to, i mean to the best they can what uh, their game plan is then i think their back four is not going to be exposed so much because their press is just so good and while it is true that teams are getting better at playing out i personally still believe that there are only about two or three teams in the premier league who i would sort of who i would back to completely outplay the newcastle press which is uh, manchester city obviously because they're just too good brighton because this is their whole thing like baiting a press and getting out of it and uh, arsenal i am 50-50 on i think it depends on how how they're exactly setting up and who they've got but i that's that's a close one but i think newcastle's press can cause problems to almost everyone else unless i'm missing something obvious and alex wants to point that out but no no i was just saying uh, you've I think we've covered the topic well. I, I was—I I only wanted to say something. I was going to say a couple of minutes ago is that Baron went on a very, very good explanation about the press. And in the doc I've just seen, he's got a and and worded oh, yes. an essay <laughs> on counter pressing. So I'm really curious to see what is going to be said next by Baron. And I'm also curious to see if it goes over 50 minutes in our recording. Yeah, it's definitely going to go with 50. But let, let's have your I'll, essay I'll be on... I'll at Popcorn. Yeah, let's have your essay on counter-pressing and its limits. I'll, I'll, I'll bring out my notepad. Professor, please take it away. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I had a thought in my head and I don't know why I wrote essay. It's not going to be an essay. It'll be actually really funny if just like my greetings to the episode, I just say, oh, they're good. And we just end it like that. Uh, but no, I have a lot more to say. Um, so, and my... the essay is it's not an essay but my point was on the larger vision of uh, newcastle's tactics if you see all the signings um, and what you've spoken about all of us agree that they are buying players who are really good at a counter press game it's as simple as that i mean gordon and barnes are not uh, not the players uh i don't know guardiola or someone is buying but they fit what newcastle are doing really well tonali as well all of them have that intensity they steal the ball and they counter into space so either they dribblers who run into space or they are passers who pass well into space there's some element of the whole steal and transition into space and this brings us well into the whole idea that they are very reliant on the counter press and they're very good pressing side and i think this was discussed a lot even when red bull football was being hyped then when bielsa um, came up a lot with leeds 
and I think it's a point John McKenzie made and it stuck with me. The problem with this approach and why there's a ceiling to it is the better you get at counter-pressing, the better you get at winning the ball back, the more of the ball you have and the less you're able to counter-press. So it's just a cycle that hits itself. At the end of the day, if you get really good at winning the ball back, then you're just going to have a lot of the ball. And after a point, teams are going to be like, okay, fine, take the ball. Now let's see what you do with it. And this is the, in general, top team dilemma. What do you do when you have more of the ball and you just aren't generating enough counter-press situations to beat a team? And I think that's the ceiling Newcastle will hit at some point. And I even have a few stats to back it up. It's not just all theory. So last season in the Premier League, when it comes to passes into final third, Newcastle were 11th. When it comes to carries into the final third, Newcastle was 7th. So we spoke about the underlines being really good. But when it still comes to final third penetration, they are average. And it's just that the few times they penetrate, they're big chances. They are transitions into open space. They're like 2v2s or 1v1s. And that's why it works. But when those big chances stop and why your teams like City, Bayern or Arsenal. Arsenal are the closest competitors competitors to City. And why? Because they have that structure, that 2-3-5 or whatever. And they're able to retain possession in the final third and then break down an opponent. They can keep the ball there and keep passing and then generate those spaces and attack them. And I think that's the limit Newcastle will reach. They will have to be pretty good on the ball at some point of time. They can't always rely on uh, being really good off the ball. And then it circles back to what Alex was saying that this doesn't feel like a title-challenging team. Guimarães probably has that quality. He's good in any system. He can play, make, keep the ball. Isak probably has that quality. Your Gordon, your Barnes, your Almiron, when they don't have space to run into, when their effectiveness in stealing the ball and you know running into space uh, reduces, when the opportunities to do that reduces, are they the guys who are going to lead you a title challenge for you? I think. That's when Newcastle will probably, you know, get figured out or get found out and will have to rethink the strategy. I think they will require some of those in-possession monsters as well, not just out-of-possession monsters, if they really want to become a balanced team. That was my essay on counter-pressing. I I, I give that an applause because that was a a brilliant, I think a brilliant um, summary of it. And I totally agree with the points you made. And especially the point about um, the paradox of, you know, pressing, counter-pressing, if we can call it that, is absolutely spot on. Um, But I think one thing I would say is that we have to remember that this is a team that was battling relegation this time two years ago. And I think to get up to a top four team from there, this is probably the quickest way to do it. Because I think if you're converting a relegation battler immediately into a possession-based team, that probably takes a couple of years and a couple of mid-table finishes. Whereas this gets you instantly there and then you get stuck there with the uh, ceiling, as you say. And I think at that, at when they will reach it, which is probably not that far away, it becomes a question that probably goes beyond how because I'm not sure if he'll be able to implement that. So it goes to the level of like Dan Ashworth and, and you know, the sort of the management team about what direction they take it in. But I think for now, it's understandable how they've gone um, and it's understandable the direction they've taken. So I think on that note, 
unless Alex has something to add. No, I, I just wanted to say, if you'd ended the bit on it goes beyond how and you'd said instead it's about why, I would have applauded you. Oh, God, right, right, fair. Oh, so, continue. continue. Yeah, the big chance missed. But anyway, uh, on that point, I, I think let's quickly have our predictions for Newcastle just this season. Um, so, uh, obviously, they're in the league and the Champions League. Uh, cup, we don't really care about that much. But if you have something to say about the cup, feel free. But let's start with you, Alex. I guess everyone gets 30 seconds. Tell us where they finish in the league. Tell us where they finish in the Champions League. Start now. Uh, I think they'll finish uh, sixth in the Premier League. I don't think they'll get top four again. I think that's asking too much. We've outlined how thin their squad is. Um, uh, I think it'll still be a strong season, but any team that gets to the Champions League first time, I back them to drop off next time. Champions League, I think they go to the round of 16. I think Dortmund finish bottom because they're horrible. I think Milan finish third because pre-season, I predicted they wouldn't be good and I have to stand by it, even though they're doing pretty good. Uh, so yeah, Newcastle round of 16 and sixth. Brilliant, Alex. That's 28 seconds. Varun, can you do better than that? Let's see. I can't. I'm not even going to try. Um, I think sixth in the Premier League. Um, agree with Alex. They're going to drop off. Mm, Champions League, I think they come third and go to Europa. And that's probably their level. I do see them go deep in the Cups. They The, the philosophy they have, and they went deep last year as well. I think they can get a Cup trophy. I think they'll win one of... Europa, FA or Carabao, they'll get one of the cup trophies, but they'll be sixth in the Premier League and not get out of the group in the Champions League. Yeah, I think that was a decent effort. Now, I'll probably end up breaking my rule, but let's quickly... You are, I'll shout at you if you do. <laughs> okay, let's start now. Yeah, so I agree with you guys. Sixth in the league is about right. Um, in the Champions League, I expect them to finish third. And then they can't really go anywhere in the Europa League. I think, Alex, you're totally wrong about uh, Milan. And that's maybe a separate discussion for someday. And yeah, Cups, I agree with Varun. Uh, even FA Cup, they can do something there. So I'm not saying win it, but deep run. Europa League, decent run. Sixth in the league, they'll have to fight for. That's my prediction. I think... Ooh, I think you did we... it. You're only wrong about Milan. But besides that, you're great. <laughs> uh, well, we'll find out in, at a later episode, perhaps. But for this one, I think that, that that's your lot then. Um, thank you very much for listening. Big thanks to you guys for joining us. Of course, you can find all of us on Twitter. Uh, Alex is at EuroExpert underscore. Uh, Varun is at the Devils DNA. In, in obviously one one word because that's how ads work. And I am at Shailat Neil. So that's my name flipped around. And of course, the Get Football account um, you can find at Get Football EU. And then in the bio, we have linked all of our sort of sister accounts for all the league and country specific coverage. Uh, which you can go to for, for, for all of that. So, yep, do keep a lookout, of course, on all our platforms where we'll be covering football from all over the world with uh, your, your news features, videos, analysis, and all sorts of stuff from some of the best people uh, in, the, in the media landscape. And you can find a link to all of that in the notes or, or the description of this show, depending on where you're listening. So you can find all of that there. And if you can, please do rate uh, the podcast as well and give us a five-star review if you liked it because that helps us uh, with our reach. And also, please do share this on social on the social media if you enjoyed it because obviously that helps with reach as well. But in any case, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to you guys, Varun and Alex, for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another interesting discussion. Take care until then. Goodbye.